Popular progressive Christian author Rachel Held Evans passed away May 4th after a short illness. She was only 37 and left behind a husband and two young children. Her death hit the progressive Christian and evangelical communities hard. She was eulogized on social media as well as in mainstream media outlets such as the Washington Post. I didn't know her personally, but I followed her on Twitter and interacted with her through tweets. That's how I first heard about her, probably a good year or two ago. Rachel's tweets were often thought-provoking. I also enjoyed reading her books, which spoke to me as someone who has been working through my own faith journey, having walked away from evangelicalism, but figuring out what I truly believed coming through the other side. Rachel wasn't an ordained minister, but she was a Christian who was also working through her faith journey and was able to find a path forward where she could shed the toxicity that comes with evangelical religion, but still retain faith in God and even faith in Christ. And her life demonstrated how shedding toxicity was a work in progress, but was worth the effort. She acknowledged that she was still learning, particularly in the area of how to be a true ally to marginalized people, including LGBTQ people and people of color. As a cishet white woman, she showed humility that she didn't have all the answers, but was willing to listen to people who lived that experience firsthand. That was incredibly meaningful. While Rachel is no longer with us, she still lives. We have her writings and recorded talks. We also have her memories. And her spirit still lives on in the multitude of people whose lives have been influenced by her. In my faith journey, especially the last few years, I've had several influences on that journey. People I know in real life and people I don't, but still I listen to and they make me think. From my pastors to progressive evangelicals such as Jim Wallace to a number of awesome people in the ex-evangelical community, Tori Douglas, Chris Stroop, and many others. And one of those influences was Rachel Held Evans. And that's why, despite not knowing her personally, her death hit me in a real way. This episode is about thinking for yourself and why it's extremely difficult to do so when you're in evangelicalism. This was a topic I had planned out well in advance, but with remembering the impact Rachel had in empowering Christians to explore their faith with their own minds and hearts, it has a bit of an extra special meaning. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. several states have enacted abortion bans, including states such as Ohio and Alabama that do not include an exception for rape and incest. The idea is to ultimately force the U.S. Supreme Court to evaluate these state laws and overturn Roe v. Wade. Yet, these same politicians passing these bans don't seem to have the same energy for providing care for pregnant women improving maternal mortality rates, 
instituting universal health care, or improving public assistance and social services. These abortion bans are specifically aimed at forcing women to be incubators rather than any claim that they're preserving the lives of the unborn. I discussed abortion in a two-part series last year, so feel free to check that out. Now, I will revisit abortion as a topic in the near future. But the reason I briefly bring it up here is because it ties into a real threat to liberty in the United States, right-wing evangelical Christianity. Right-wing extremist Christianity has been behind these anti-abortion bills that reduce women and girls to incubators with no bodily autonomy. Right-wing extremist Christianity has been behind the bathroom bills targeting transgender people, as well as the military ban against people who are trans. Right-wing extremist Christianity is behind the government arguing against granting citizenship to children because their parents are in a same-sex marriage. Right-wing extremist Christianity is behind the effort to separate children from their parents at the border just to be sent to adoption agencies and be separated from their families forever. Right-wing extremist Christianity is behind these religious freedom laws that lead to discrimination against others who don't believe or live in the way they approve. Right-wing extremist Christianity enables white supremacy, radicalizing of young white men, and terrorism. And right-wing extremist Christianity is the driving force behind a white supremacist, misogynistic demagogue, one of the worst presidents our country has seen in generations. They are willing to set the country ablaze to own the libs, and they want to destroy America because they think they'll be raptured from the worst of it. There's a lot of demonization of extremist Islam in the U.S., not only for its ties to terrorism, but its subjugation of women. Is extremist Islam problematic? Of course. But instead of worrying about your friendly Muslim neighbor instituting Sharia, which, by the way, using Sharia as a synonym for radical extremist Islamic law is a bit of a misnomer, our liberty is under its greatest threat by those who just blend in here in the good old USA. Religion, color, and all. Our good old boys and girls next door are screwing up the great experiment for the rest of us. And we have Democrats like Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, and the other third waivers acting as if reasoning with Republican politicians or the 81% of white evangelicals who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 will turn everything around. House Speaker Pelosi has been balking at the idea of having William Barr, Steve Mnuchin, and others arrested for failing to comply with congressional subpoenas and essentially thumbing their noses at the Democratic-led House. Former Vice President Biden, for his part, has decided to go middle of the road courting Trump supporters' path, what I called in the last episode the Buttigieg method in his presidential campaign. Recently, Biden said, quote, we need to stop fighting and start fixing, end quote. He also said, quote, if the American people want a president to add to our division, to lead with a clenched fist, closed hand, and a hard heart, to demonize the opponents and spew hatred, they don't need me. They've got President Donald Trump. I am running to offer our country, Democrats, Republicans, and Independents, a different path, 
end quote. It's as if moderate Democrats, or really the center-right within the party, think this current state of affairs is a joke. Oh, it's not so bad. Let's unify. Kumbaya. Everyone deep inside just wants peace. It's as if they've checked out of life for the past several years. They're not reading the room. The truth is, we are beyond negotiations. This is not the 1980s or early 90s pre-Clinton. Many Democratic leaders grossly underestimate the threat. Republican politicians are beholden to corporate donors who hate regulations on their businesses. Republican voters, particularly Trump voters, are living for the vitriol and trolling America to own the libs. And most importantly for this episode, the white evangelicals, Trump's most loyal constituents, cannot be reasoned with. Because much like the young man or woman from ISIS or Al-Qaeda, they believe they have God on their side. And believing God is your pilot and your beliefs are straight from God can lead you to support horrendous things. A refrain I keep hearing, whether it's from family and friends or from people online, is that this oppressive, judgmental, hypocritical, anti-LGBTQ, white supremacist, patriarchal version of Christianity that is running our politics isn't real Christianity, and that the people who believe this way aren't real Christians. And you know, I get it. Ask me a few years ago, and I would have said the same thing. But I don't feel the same way anymore. Of course, part of it is the no true Scotsman fallacy. The idea that those who do X aren't really a part of our group. That gets weird because the definition of what it means to be a Christian then shifts. And to be honest, different Christian groups tend to do that a lot. Evangelicals tend to say that about Catholics or mainline Christians or progressive Christians or social justice minded Christians or fake Christians. Catholics sometimes call Protestants fake Christians. Progressives and social justice-minded Christians say evangelicals aren't real Christians. And even when gatekeeping within those traditions, what determines if someone, whether it's a current Christian author or theologian or Christian philosopher or practitioner in the past, what is the dividing line that makes them in or out? Which doctrine, which belief, which cultural practice? Is it retrograde or intolerant beliefs about women or people of color or different ethnicities or LGBTQ people, people of different faiths, such as Jews or Muslims, or people with an absence of belief, atheists? Thing is, the key detail of Christianity that distinguishes it from other religions, including other Abrahamic religions, such as Islam and Judaism, is the belief that Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, is the Son of God, and came to save humanity from eternal separation from God. That's it, y'all. That's it. Another problem with Christians disowning evangelical Christians is that it divorces us from any responsibility or role in addressing the problem. Sometimes you'll hear people, especially in the West, say that more moderate or mainstream Muslims should address the extremists within their faith, such as the Wahhabis, an ultra-conservative movement within Islam practiced in places such as Saudi Arabia or Qatar that hold oppressive beliefs and practices regarding the treatment and subjugation of women and have a penchant for terrorism. The fact is, there are a number of Muslims that do just that. But we don't expect the same of Christians. Maybe, just maybe, we should. 
And going along with that, as a Christian who believes that evangelicals are damaging both this country and the faith in their march towards an authoritarian Christian theocracy, I believe that simply dismissing evangelicals as not really Christian doesn't fix anything. It's the easy way out. It's a cop-out. And in the context of the United States, it's a bit of a privileged position to take. The U.S. is not a Christian nation, but Christianity is the dominant religion. While there is a sizable contingent of Americans who are dismayed by the attempts by evangelicals at political and social domination, there is very little expectation for Christians outside of conservative evangelicalism to actively denounce their extremist brethren. It should be leveraged on behalf of those who do not share in that privilege. Also, if I just dismiss evangelicals as not really Christian, it means that I'm not reckoning with the parts of my faith's theology that might be problematic. There's no wrestling, no thinking, no growth. And in that sense, it's just enabling and perpetuating the same problems. Poking one's head in the sand doesn't all of a sudden make the problem not exist. And it means that without criticism from within the faith, an alternative voice, the abuse and oppression that is occurring in the name of Christianity simply goes unchallenged. And only people who speak for the faith are those whose actions are destroying it, along with the nation we call home. In a number of previous episodes of Potstar Podcast, I've spent a great deal of time criticizing evangelical Christianity. I brought up empirical evidence for my position regarding evangelicals, such as the fact that 81% of evangelical voters voted for Donald Trump, a white supremacist, adulterous grifter whose racism cheating, and theft have stretched over decades. Or the fact that the degree to which morality matters for evangelical voters has taken a nosedive over the last 20 or so years. It clearly doesn't matter anymore to them, at least for their secular leaders. And there is evidence to suggest that white evangelical votes were driven by fear of losing their privileged status in society. But I think it may also be helpful to talk about how the core issues within evangelicalism manifest themselves in real life. What does it look like from the inside? And how are evangelicals socialized into fervently holding on to a worldview that is morally and intellectually inconsistent at best and a worldview with dangerous implications at worst? This is my own experience with evangelicalism some personal insight into why I truly believe evangelicalism must be defeated, not reasoned with. Of course, it's anecdotal. So other people's experiences may be different. But having been through it and then come out of the other side being able to examine the evangelical tradition with a bit of distance, I can see how some of the root teachings within evangelical Christianity can lead down an authoritarian, oppressive path and why it's so dangerous to our political and social fabric. I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but I came to Christ, so to speak, when I was a college freshman, so I didn't get the full-on experience of being immersed in evangelical Christianity from birth. But it didn't mean I was a stranger to religion or even authoritarian Christianity. My mom was and is a non-denominational Christian. She's not an evangelical, but she's from a black Protestant background. 
And while it doesn't have all the white supremacist trappings of evangelicalism, there are certain aspects, such as authoritarianism and biblical inerrancy, that are pretty similar. So while I was growing up, she tended to emphasize that she was the authority because the Bible said, honor your father and mother. And she truly leveraged that aspect of the Bible. My dad, on the other hand, grew up Catholic, then dabbled in a number of religions and spiritual philosophies, including Islam. He always believed in God, but I think he was always exploring what that looked like for him. His last conversion before his untimely death 12 years ago was to Christianity. Now, where did I land at this point in time? I grew up as what can be best described as a functional agnostic. If you asked me back then when I was a teenager, I wouldn't have said I was agnostic. But looking back on it now, that's the best way I can characterize it. Because throughout my adolescence, I went through periods of being deep into religion, going to church regularly, reading the Bible, all that but it wasn't consistent. And there were times when deep inside, I wondered if God really existed. Also, I tended to identify Christianity with my mom. And given that teenagers often clash with their parents, and I was no exception, you can kind of see where this is going. So on one hand, I was acutely aware of authoritarian Christianity, even though it wasn't in an evangelical context. And I did embrace Christianity at certain times because that was how I was taught. And as a young person, that was how I was learning to kind of shape my world in a sense. But on the other hand, I was a thinker at heart. And even when I was going through those hardcore religious periods, I questioned the system and wondered whether or not I truly believed deep inside my heart. While in my senior year of high school, I was working an after-school job, and with the money I earned, I would do a couple things with it. I would buy clothes, brand-name clothes my parents wouldn't get me, and I would get my hair done. I would get my hair done at a salon near my house. The hairdresser and her husband were both Christians, part of the full gospel movement. Full gospel is essentially charismatic Christianity, or Pentecostalism, which is an evangelical movement focused on expressive, mystical gifts of the Spirit like catching the Holy Ghost, speaking in tongues, prophesying, stuff like that. I've encountered street preachers and people proselytizing before, but it made me uncomfortable. But this particular couple spoke to me in a way that made me at least listen and think about it. So even though I wasn't ready to full-on commit to being a Christian, I was being primed for it. So when I started college, I was away from home in a different state, far away from my family and friends. It felt weird. And as someone who didn't easily make friends, it was pretty lonely. The Friday of the first week of class, as I was walking back to my dorm after class, I was approached on South Oval by two campus evangelists that, come to find out, were from a local megachurch. They talked to me about Jesus. And when they asked me, I chose to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Part of it was because I did believe on some level. But part of it was that as someone who was not popular at any point during my K-12 through schooling, and I just felt that feeling of not really belonging anywhere, I wanted to start over again by having someplace where I belonged, where I felt accepted. 
in college, the quarter after being saved, OSU was on quarters at the time, I was in the church and university, my campus ministry. Though, to be honest, I was most consistent with campus ministry. Well, many students were partying, having lots of drink and tons of sex. I was going to Bible study, sometimes leading them, and attending Christian retreats. While many students were talking about their classes or the latest sports scores, I was trying to tell my dorm mates, colleagues, and occasionally random people on the street about the love of Jesus. I probably would have told people in my actual classes if it wasn't like 100 or 200 people in a class. Now, while I was telling everybody about God and about Jesus, my introvert soul was screaming. But if you don't tell others about Jesus, it's your fault they're going to hell. That's a lot of weight on a young person just starting to figure out life or anyone, really. And this was a culture I was a part of throughout undergrad at Ohio State and during much of grad school at the University of Cincinnati. Now, during grad school, that was at the point maybe in the middle of grad school when I started to question and I started to gradually walk away over a period of time. But I'll save those details for another time. Being in an evangelical environment is like any social group bound by ideology of some sort. You pick up on the norms and values of the group. In the case of evangelicalism, it's concepts like tithing, debt elimination, serving in the church, what it means to serve the community, the importance of missions to people in other cultures, whether overseas or stateside, purity culture, avoiding being unequally yoked, so to speak, by only dating Christians or only courting Christians and only being involved with the opposite sex if you're bound towards marriage, not approaching men to declare romantic interests if you're a woman, how to deal with being queer or how to address LGBTQ people, where does social justice and equality fit within the gospel, and so on. Whether it's how you spend your time or money or what causes you're devoted to or who you love or how you live, it's dictated by the group. And what kind of things make it to where you're suspect or you don't belong anymore? Not supporting the Republican candidate in the most recent election, which makes you a baby killer by proxy. Drinking, reading the wrong translation of the Bible. Supporting racial equality and justice. Being a queer person not willing to repent of the gay lifestyle. To be clear, their words, not mine. Supporting the unqualified affirmation of LGBTQ people. Yoga, martial arts, and other practices associated with Eastern religions. Supporting economic equality. And those are just the messages I personally heard evangelical Christians, including those in leadership, say, either directed at me, or other Christians. And if you're not intimately familiar with evangelicalism or similar ideologies, of course the question is, why would you just take it all in? All that messaging and never question it, never push back against it, never think for yourself. And it's a legitimate question. It makes complete sense. Here's the thing. Evangelical ideology, when you're immersed in it, is incredibly powerful. In general, and this is not exclusive to Christianity. People tend to adopt religion either when they're very young, so essentially they grew up in it, or they adopt it when they're in a vulnerable period in their lives. So think Malcolm X joining the Nation of Islam while in prison, or Tina Turner becoming a Buddhist while in the midst of leaving an abusive marriage. Religion provides comfort, community, and stability. 
Now, I'm not arguing against the validity of religion. I mean, I think that if we're going through a time where we're trying to understand our lives, different conclusions can be reached that can meet some of those same needs. But it's important to recognize that when people crave some understanding of their world when vulnerable, either because of their youth or their circumstances, religion is often adopted to provide that life framework. So there's this basic hold that people have on their faith because of how they came to join it. Now, particularly in terms of Christianity, there are some other conditions to keep in mind. The Bible, according to theologically conservative Christians, particularly evangelicals, is the inerrant word of God. The idea being that the Bible is the word of God without error, without mistakes, without contradictions. The problem with the doctrine of inerrancy is that it is ahistorical and fails to take into account the reality of what the Bible is. The Bible is a collection of writings by several authors written over a period of several centuries. It is written within a specific cultural context, within a world that, for the most part, no longer exists and cannot be duplicated. Even if you believe God inspired these authors, his message is still being filtered through the minds of human authors with their own baggage. That doesn't simply go away. And that means contradictions are part of the text, which Christians have been attempting to reconcile since these books were written. There's even been debate waged for close to two millennia over which writings should be considered biblical canon or which sets of ancient manuscripts should be the foundation for Bible translations. So to put it simply, this stuff is hard. Evangelicalism all too often tends to want to take that difficulty that wrestling with the validity and meaning of scripture out of the equation. Because let's face it, people feel more comfortable with simple. There are a few elements of what this looks like, at least in my experience, that can be problematic. Within theologically conservative Christianity, particularly evangelicalism, there is an element of focus on authority-mindedness or authoritarianism, which is supported in the social science research. But this is what it looks like on the ground, at least from my perspective. So whether it was in the churches I attended over the time I was evangelical or in campus ministry or in Bible study, it was always taught not to trust your own judgment. Due to the concept of original sin, meaning we're born with a sin nature, we're born less than perfect with a propensity to sin. The idea of original sin is not exclusive to evangelicals. It's also a concept in Roman Catholicism, in many Black Protestant churches, and a number of other Christian churches. I don't want to completely say it's universal, but it's nearly universal in Christianity. And one thing to understand is that to evangelicals, the concept of sin isn't simply doing bad things or doing evil. It's missing the mark. It's working or doing things outside of God's will, outside of what God wants for us to do. We can't trust our own judgment because our judgment, our thoughts, our desires are carnal or of the flesh and outside of God's will. And certain passages in the Bible are used to emphasize this message. Trust in the Lord with all your heart 
and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. So if you can't trust yourself, who can you trust? You trust God, of course. And how do we know God's will? You can pray about it or read the Bible. But how do you know that your interpretation, what you're looking to do, is within God's will? How do you know that you're looking at it and interpreting it correctly? You can ask someone within the church who is considered mature in the faith and therefore trustworthy, or you can ask the pastor or other church leaders. In other words, trusted authorities. In Pentecostalism and other charismatic movements within evangelicalism, you can also receive guidance supernaturally, as they believe that supernatural gifts of the Spirit are still in effect. This is stuff like hearing God talk to you directly or having another believer give a prophecy over your life. But in general, for evangelicals, knowing the right things to do and believe That comes through praying, Bible reading, and listening to trusted authorities in your life. And again, Bible verses are used to emphasize this seating of authority over your own thoughts and over your own actions. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 5. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Hebrews 13, 7. And word from authority is not just advice you can take or leave. It's God's word. And who are you to question God? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Romans 9.20 You know who makes you check your brain at the door? Cults. On that note, I recommend you listen to some of the more recent episodes of MindShift Podcast. It's by Clint Haycock, a theology PhD and a former evangelical who interviews guests about leaving evangelicalism and critique of the tradition. Recently, he's discussed in depth and in a number of episodes the similarities between evangelicalism and cults. So definitely check that out if you're interested in further exploring those parallels. So in any case, particularly when we're told within evangelicalism to trust other people who are authority figures, whether they're formally church leaders or just trusted lay leaders, lay meaning those who aren't ordained or formally part of the church leadership structure, that power and influence can be weaponized. Not that it always is, but it definitely can. And this weaponization can take different forms. Some authority figures may exploit Christians who look up to them, whether it's financially, socially, or sexually. The church sex abuse scandals are on the more extreme end of this exploitation, but it's oftentimes more subtle and less talked about, but still dangerous. Like working class and poor people having their bank accounts bled dry so the pastor can buy a new Bugatti. ATMs in the church lobby, so you can't say you forgot to bring cash a check for the offering basket. 
shunning or publicly shaming a particular member for getting pregnant outside of marriage. White ministers admonishing their black congregants that concern about police brutality and anti-black racism is anti-gospel. Elders advising parents to force their gay kids into conversion therapy. Or pastors telling women to stay in abusive marriages because God hates divorce. Some leaders may enable abuse, abuse from parents or church leaders to children, or from men to women. And these are also supported by certain Bible passages and contradicted in others. But of course, enablers don't want to talk about that. But sometimes that weaponization might not necessarily be targeted at the believers themselves, but the world around them. Within evangelicalism, there is a concept of spiritual warfare, that Christians are soldiers for God. It's sort of similar to the Islamic concept of jihad. In Islam, jihad can be defined as the fight against enemies of Islam, which is the definition we tend to hear most in the media and among politicians, although even that definition is a little more nuanced and at least conceptually doesn't necessarily mean violence. The other definition of jihad is the internal spiritual fight against sin. This is known as the greater jihad. When we look at the concept of spiritual warfare within Christianity, there's a focus on spiritual fight against sin, similar to greater jihad. The concept of Jesus' death and resurrection within Christianity reflects this idea that his life was given in sacrifice so Christians can overcome sin which results in eternal separation from God. His resurrection means that sin was conquered once and for all. While Jesus' death on the cross doesn't mean individual Christians don't fight against sin in their day-to-day lives, it does mean that the death and resurrection of Christ means that Christians can have hope that at the very end, sin is conquered and the good guys, Jesus and those who follow him, win. And this idea of spiritual warfare is also supported within the Bible. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Ephesians 6, 10-17 But as it goes when people of today interpret ancient texts, there's also the concept of a more practical real-life fight against the world. Us against the world. The world meaning the rulers, the authority, the powers of this dark world, anything and anyone perceived as evil to them. And to them, who is this dark world? Who are these spiritual forces of evil? Non-Christians, non-evangelicals, evangelicals that aren't conservative enough, people whose beliefs or orientation they disapprove of, like feminists, Democrats, and LGBTQ people, 
people of color, including Christians of color, foreigners, especially those from countries they see as backwards. And who's them? Who is making that determination? Leaders. And leaders are considered authority figures that you do not question because their authority comes from God. Within evangelicalism, televangelists, best-selling evangelical authors, and megachurch leaders are at the top of the authority heap because their success is seen as a blessing. If they are successful and if they are blessed, they must curry special favor with God, right? So that's why evangelical figures like Franklin Graham and Jerry Falwell Jr. and their fathers before them, and televangelists such as Pat Robertson, Paula White, Rod Parsley, Benny Hinn, and Joel Osteen, megachurch pastors like Rick Warren, and evangelizing authors like Joyce Meyer have such outsized influence within the evangelical tradition. Now, not all of them use this influence in the exact same way, but there is a contingent, a powerful contingent, that have used this influence to gain political power and advocate for the advancement of a conservative Christian agenda in U.S. government and society, an agenda that seeks to make their version of Christianity the law of the land and stomp out the influence of those they see as enemies of the faith. Some call it Christian Sharia or Christian Jihad, but while similar, and I've, and I've sort of made the comparison at least to Jihad, I don't think we want to co-opt Islamic terms to describe a problem inherent in evangelical Christianity that is rooted in Christian doctrine and theology. Let's call it what it is, Christian theocracy. Now, here's the thing, though. The Bible was a text written by a people group, the ancient Hebrews, or the Jewish people, who had extensive experience living under occupation or as a subjugated people. Whether it was at the hands of the Egyptians, Assyrians, or Babylonians in the Old Testament, or the Roman Empire in the New Testament. So the Bible was essentially written from the viewpoint of an oppressed people. This is why, for example, German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche called Christianity a slave religion and religion of the weak. Christianity is derived from a people group who spent much of its existence, up until that point, under someone else's boot. And Christianity itself was largely an underground minority religion in the Roman Empire during the time the New Testament books were written, and many Christians were put to death for their beliefs. This was the case in the Roman Empire until the time of Emperor Constantine in the 2nd century CE. His conversion to Christianity led to the faith becoming the dominant religion in the West, but up until that time, Christianity and the Judaism it was derived from were religions of the oppressed. You cannot divorce it from this context. But it doesn't keep people from trying. In the context of the United States, Christianity is the dominant religion. Christmas is a fixed federal holiday. There are no other religions that enjoy a federal holiday. Private businesses cater to Christian celebrations. The seasonal aisle of grocery stores and department stores are often dominated with themes geared towards Christian holidays. Christmas, Valentine's Day, Easter, Halloween. While these are celebrated by people who aren't Christian, these are Christian holidays. Maybe you'll see some Hanukkah merch here and there, but for the most part, Christianity rules the day. 
one nation under God in the Pledge of Allegiance, and in God we trust, on money. Most politicians claim Christianity, and it's extremely difficult for openly atheist people to win elected office. There are a smattering of Jewish people and Muslims in elected office, and this often has to do with the makeup of their constituent base. But even then, those people may be distrusted by wider society due to their minority faith. And these days, especially Muslims, look at the criticism Ilham Omar and Rashida Tlaib get for being Muslims, particularly Muslims who criticize the government of Israel. Christian politicians in general cater towards pleasing the largely religious populace with messages positive about the Christian faith and geared towards that. Even Donald Trump, who has said he has no need for forgiveness, has given messages that are targeted towards what his religious base wants to hear, even if he doesn't have a history of believing it himself. For example, he has historically been pro-choice on abortion and is rumored to have paid for several abortions himself, arising from his many, many extramarital affairs. But during his 2016 campaign, he flipped the script and went all in anti-abortion, describing the procedure in gory terms. The point is that in the U.S., Christianity is the dominant religion, and Christians are a privileged, powerful group a privileged, powerful group that sees themselves in the narrative of an oppressed people living under occupation. So particularly for evangelical Christianity, which is all about biblical inerrancy and to a degree, biblical literalism, they don't see themselves as the bad guys, the powerful people who are often portrayed as the wicked within scripture. They see themselves as the good guys, the subjugated, the downtrodden, the weak, struggling against the strong even though it's not remotely true. And as a regular rank-and-file evangelical Christian, it's hard to see that reality when you're told not to trust your own judgment and embrace the judgment of your leaders instead, without question, who are influenced by those with the greatest influence in evangelicalism, wealthy Christian figures with political influence and aspirations, and an enemies list and guide you to take on a narrative of oppressed people to declare you yourself privileged for your faith are actually the ones oppressed by those who are truly oppressed and therefore in need of protection, meaning in all reality, reinforce privilege to the detriment of the truly marginalized, which is the complete opposite of the overarching biblical narrative, which is the elevation of the oppressed, the weak, the losers, over the wicked who are in power. And on this particular point, in the Bible, there is no contradiction. But you can't question that what you've been taught doesn't make sense because your thoughts are sinful and who are you to question God? It's a mind screw and it's gaslighting. This episode has been about the core biblical narrative of an ultimate triumph of the losers over society's wicked winners. Now, let's talk about some other losers, some really awesome losers. I want to recommend to you a really awesome, entertaining, and thought-provoking podcast that has now joined Flying Machine, The Losers. The Losers is hosted by Shay and Wendy, who spend each episode discussing Oscar nominees who they believe should have won, 
didn't quite make it and compare them to the winners. Their first episode on the network is the best director at the 1989 Oscars. They compared Charles Crichton in the movie A Fish Called Wanda to the winner, Barry Levinson, for Rain Man. This is an awesome episode. What sticks out to me about that particular episode is their really interesting discussion on how actual autistic people felt about Rain Man's portrayal of autism. So check out that episode and get to listening to their back catalog. These ladies release some really good stuff. Listen to The Losers on Apple Podcasts. Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher, or go to their website at theloserspod.podbean.com. Thank you very much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirerpodcast.com slash download, and you'll see the links. If you subscribe, you can get new episodes once they come out so you don't miss out. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please give us five stars and leave a review. It only takes a few minutes. And I'm always tweeting, so follow me on Twitter at PotstirrerCast. One other quick announcement. Potstirrer Podcast has released on Sundays for the last couple of years. But starting in two weeks, I'll be moving to a Tuesday release. So beginning in June... Bright and early every other Tuesday morning will be your dose of Poster Podcast. So I'll see you then. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine.